Let's uh, turn to the 11th chapter of Acts and continue our studies in this book, Acts 11. I grew up, as most of you know, in Dallas, Texas, and uh, went to um, Highland Park High School there, which was the highest school where most of the uh, money kids in town went to school. Uh, my family was not uh, particularly wealthy, but we were fairly well-to-do, and, and uh, we lived in that community, and so that's the school that I attended and graduated from. Those kids uh, had almost anything you could ever uh, wish for. They drove nice cars. They wore nice clothes. Uh, they could uh, fly up to uh, Colorado and ski on the weekends, and there were just a lot of benefits to living in that, in that area. One of the real problems in that school was drinking. Uh, the school that Carolyn attended, North Dallas High School, used to refer to us as tea sippers, but uh, that wasn't really true. There was an awful lot of hard drinking that went on. It seemed to go with that lifestyle, the uh, money and, and the freedom that kids enjoyed in that, uh, in that area of the city. In fact, we had a... Uh, we had an underground alma mater that we used to sing that I've never forgotten. It wasn't the official uh, school song, but it was one that we sang in the halls. Uh, and I've never forgotten it. It goes, give a shout, give a cheer for the boys that make the beer in the cellars of Highland Park High. We are brave, we are bold, and the liquor that we hold is a story that's often been told. And it goes on and on. I won't, won't uh, bore you with the details. Uh, in in the middle of that of that fast lane crowd were a group of four or five young men who were really unforgettable characters. In fact, uh, a couple of them almost didn't graduate from high school because of some things that uh, they did at the senior presentation. We had a, a senior assembly at the end of the year, which the seniors were responsible for, and a couple of things went on that... Uh, the school authorities uh, frowned on, and they almost kicked them out of school right at the last minute. After high school, I lost contact with these young men. They went to different schools. Some of them went to Rice University and others to the University of Texas, and I sort of kept up with them indirectly through some mutual friends. But uh, we really had no... Uh, I had no personal contact with them. Until last fall, Carolyn and I were in, in Dallas. I was uh, speaking for a, a banquet there. And uh, we went down to spend some time with my father as well. And we were sitting in his living room one night, and the telephone rang. And uh, I answered the telephone. My father called me to the phone. And it turned out uh, to be Dick Burnett, whom I hadn't heard from in 30 years. And uh, his voice was familiar at first, and then he identified himself, and I asked him how he was doing, and we chatted for a while. And then he told me that he had called me because my father had told him I was in town, and he wanted to let me know that he had become a Christian. As a matter of fact, that whole crowd had become Christians, all five of those, of those young men. And we had a great time fellowshipping on the telephone, and, and then at the conclusion of the call, I said, Dick, I would have... You, you would have been the last person that I would have expected to become a Christian. I said, what happened? And he said, well, you know, David, he said, I was looking for Jesus all my life. I just didn't know what I was looking for. And I, I find in talking to people that that very often is the case. There's such a, 
a deep hunger for something more. And uh, the restlessness of their life is simply an indication of a, of a deep, abiding hunger for something that will satisfy. And we see an illustration of that in the passage that we want to look at this morning. Acts 11. Let's begin reading with verse 19. I'm going to skip over the first 18 verses of the chapter because they are a report of Paul's conversation with Cornelius and the events that came out of that uh, contact with this Gentile uh, God-fearer. And uh, there isn't much advance on the story, so we will we'll skip over those verses to verse 19, Acts 11:19. Now those who had been dispersed by the persecution which, ar- which arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, giving the message as they went to Jews only. However, among their number were natives of Cyprus and Cyrene, and these men on their arrival at Antioch proclaimed their message to the Greeks as well, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw this working of God's grace, he was delighted. He urged them all to be resolute in their faithfulness to the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So it happened that a considerable number of people decided for the Lord. Luke doubles back in his history to chapter 8, verse 4, and the story of the, the dispersion of the Christians from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution that took place over the stoning of, of Stephen. And we're told that certain of this number, as they traveled along the coast, went first to Phoenicia, that uh, notoriously wicked Canaanite city on the coast, and there they they preached, and then they went to Cyprus, the offshore island, and then on up to Antioch. And because they were Jews and somewhat limited in their in their outlook at this time, they uh, preached only to Jews. They went to the synagogues and they opened the scriptures to the to the Jews attending there. But as far as Luke was concerned, the results were not very great, as at least the report indicates that not many turned to the Lord. But Luke says, among their number were natives of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus was the island off the coast, and Cyrene is North Africa. These these uh, men and, and women came from Alexandria and from Cyprus, and they were a little more cosmopolitan in their outlook, not quite as as restricted as those that live in Jerusalem. And on their arrival at Antioch, they began to proclaim their message to the Greeks as well. Now, Luke is inclined to be so straightforward in his history, sometimes you miss the significance of, of some of these statements. This was a, was a turning point in the history of the church. It was a, a momentous step that these people took. Nothing like this had ever happened before. There had been contact with Gentiles. We know that uh, that Samaria, the Samaritans were considered half-Jews, half-Gentiles, had turned to the Lord. Vast numbers there became believers. And we know of Philip's contact with the Ethiopian eunuch and, and Peter's uh, contact with Cornelius. But, but these were all Gentiles who had a Jewish outlook and who were looking to the Jewish people and the Jewish religion for salvation. Now we come to a new thing. The people at Antioch were utterly, absolutely pagan in the sense that they had 
no particular religious outlook. They were indifferent, seemingly, to spiritual things. Antioch was an interesting city. It's one of the third largest cities in the world behind Rome and Alexander uh, with about a half million people. It would today be very much like London or Los Angeles or, or New York City. Uh, it was a seaport town. It was located on one of the vast river systems into the interior of Syria, the Orontes River. They were located just a few miles from the Mediterranean coast. So they had a very uh, cosmopolitan uh, population. People came from all over the world to live in, in Antioch. And it was a notoriously wicked city. Uh, just outside of town, four or five miles away, there was a laurel grove in which there was a temple dedicated to Daphne. Daphne was the uh, counterpart of the old Canaanite goddess of love, Asherah or Astarte. And uh, this temple contained, housed a number of, of prostitutes, and prostitution was, uh, was plied in the name of, of religion there. Daphne, if you remember anything of Greek mythology, I, I don't, I can't keep it all straight, but, but Daphne was the young woman who seduced Apollo. And, uh, so, uh, so he became so crazed in his love for her that the gods turned her into a laurel tree. And that's why this temple was located in a laurel grove. It was the thing to do in, in Antioch in those days to outdo Daphne. As a matter of fact, the city itself became a byword for for loose and lustful living. Men stopped off at the Laurel Grove on their way home, and it was just a way of as a way of life. Uh, it was so bad that even the Romans were offended and shocked by the people that lived in in Antioch. One of the early writers of this period, Juvenal, describes the people of Antioch when they immigrated to Rome as the sewers of the Orontes, that's the river that the city was located upon, discharging into the Tiber River. They just they didn't like these Antiochans because of their their lifestyle. And it was into this city that the gospel came and this group of venturesome people began to proclaim Christ to people who seemed to have no interest, whatever. And we're told that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, I'm sure they didn't really know how to approach these people. They didn't know the Bible. They didn't know anything about the Jewish Messiah. And so it seems that they at first avoided any reference to Messiah. Their approach to them was that Jesus was the Lord that they needed. What these people knew that they needed was some control in their life. They needed a Lord. And so when they came, they began to, pre- began to preach Jesus as, as Lord. And Luke tells us they turned to the Lord. That seems to be the phrase that's used frequently in the Old Testament for Gentile salvation. Paul, uh, to the church in Thessalonica, says that they turned to the Lord from idols to serve the living and true God. These people really had nothing to live for. They had no hope. They weren't going anywhere. Their lives were utterly empty and and meaningless and frustrating. And when these early Christians came and began to preach to them, they 
they turned from that emptiness to the Lord who could give them the satisfaction and meaning that they were looking for. I was reading a history book this past week and uh, noted an interesting fact. Before Columbus discovered America, the maps of the region outside the Straits of Gibraltar had written in Latin, Ni Pols Ultra, nothing beyond. After uh, America was discovered, the map makers of that period simply erased the, the negative and they left the Pols Ultra, which in Latin means everything beyond. And when I read that, I, I thought of these, these uh, first Christians in Antioch who turned from the emptiness of their life where they really had nothing to live for. And they discovered that they had everything beyond. Now, we need to remember that these Christians who first preached in Antioch were not uh, the clergy. They weren't well known. These were no-name Christians, generic Christians, <laughs> who went up from uh, Jerusalem. This wasn't the... Uh, this wasn't a band of apostles or elders from the church in Jerusalem. They were common, ordinary believers, just like you and me, not particularly well-equipped for the task, not very theologically sophisticated. But they had a sort of audacious faith that enabled them to go into a situation that must have been frightening and make proclamation of Christ. And something happened. Luke tells us that a great number believed and turned to the Lord and and so extensive was that conversion that news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. They couldn't have sent a better, a better man. Barnabas was a troubleshooter of the early church. He seemed to be working behind the scenes much of the time to move others into position of, of leadership. He was a gentle, open-hearted, loving, affable man and the ideal man to uh, to send to Antioch. And when he arrived in that city, he perceived what Luke calls the grace of God upon these people. He saw that God was at work in their lives to change them. Now, this must have been an odd assortment, a, a kind of motley uh, collection of, of Christians. They didn't know the hymns of the church. They didn't know anything about church administration or organization or structure. They didn't have any choirs. They didn't have any buildings. They didn't know how to dress. They didn't know ecclesiastical Latin. They couldn't use all of the cliches that, that Christians are, are want to, to use. Uh, they were uh, very much pagan in, in their outlook, and yet their lives and their hearts had been changed. And when Barnabas saw them, he perceived immediately that God's grace was at work. They were being made into new people. They were becoming different in their outlook though they weren't yet very churchy, and uh, a lot of the marks of the old life were still upon them. Yet Barnabas saw that, that something was different. Their lives were, were changing. He saw former prostitutes who'd given up their profession and had gone back home to their families. And uh, men no longer stopped off at the Laurel Grove to spend their money or the local watering holes. They brought their money home for the family. And it was easy to see that something was happening to them. Ray Stedman used to tell the story of the woman who was confronted once by an atheist who challenged 
the idea that Jesus turned water into wine. And her comment was, I, I really don't have any problem with that. I'm convinced that Jesus can turn water into wine because when my Charlie became a Christian, my husband Charlie, God turned beer into groceries. <laughs> and that's what Barnabas saw. Here was the grace of God upon these people. There's an interesting note here in the text. It's, it's easy to overlook it, but it really, it really gives us the, the significance of Barnabas' observation. We're told that he saw this working of God's grace and he was delighted because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Uh, Barnabas' behavior uh, is explained by his character. He realized that something real was happening in Antioch because of the kind of person he was. He was a good man. There are two, word, two words for goodness in the New Testament. One means good in the sense of being proper and correct, rigidly upright. There's another word that means winsome or beautiful. And it's this word that's used here, the latter term. Paul combines the two words in Romans 5 when he says it, it's, it's rare, if it would happen at all, that anyone would die for a righteous man. Yet it's possible that someone might die for a good man. It's this latter term that's used here. Barnabas was a, was a gracious, kind, tolerant, loving sort of a man. He was good. He believed in the good. He tried to live by the by the truth. He was righteous and upright, but he was gentle and gracious in his wisdom. That's the sort of beauty that ought to characterize us. It's one thing to be right and proper and decorous and good in that self-righteous sense. It's another thing to be a good person, but to be gentle and kind and understanding and sympathetic of others' weaknesses and foibles and, and failures. As Proverbs puts it, Wisdom softens the face of a man. If we really understand what it means to be God's men and women, we can be correct ourselves without being judgmental and harsh and unkind to people around us who are weak. And you see, Barnabas was that kind of man. When he came to Antioch and he saw these people, he, they were very much unlike him. They came from a different culture. He was Jewish in his, in his background. And he was used to Certain, a certain diet and a certain lifestyle. And it must have been a shock to walk into these pagan households. They ate food that he normally didn't eat. They talked uh, in a way that he didn't talk. They, every once in a while, a swear word would pop up in their conversation, and, and it must have jolted him, coming from his strict religious background. They, they were different in so many ways. But he perceived underneath all of those surface differences the reality of the grace of God. They were changing. Their lives were being changed. He couldn't gainsay that. And so he gave them this word of approval and encouraged them on in the Lord. Though they were not yet where God wanted them to be, he saw that God was at, at work to perfect them. Uh, my parents, my mother and father, grew up in a uh, very conservative evangelical background for Christians almost all of their life. 
And uh, when the Jesus movement came along and uh, students started wearing their hair long and growing hair all over their face, it was a real shock to them. They found that very difficult to handle. And they honestly believed on the basis of Scripture that short hair was uh, mandated in, in Scripture, so it really bothered them. Uh, shortly after I started working with students, I went home. My mother had a stroke, and she was in the hospital, and uh, walked into the hospital room to see her, and I leaned over and kissed her, and she opened one eye and, and looked at my face. In the meantime, I'd started growing all this shrubbery. And uh, she, here I was, 33 years old. I hadn't been home for 14 years. Uh, and she looked at me and said, shave it off. <laughs> that was her uh, honest feeling about things. And my father felt very strongly about uh, uh, hair length and, and dress. Uh, about that time, there was a great movement of God on the Stanford campus and large numbers of students came to Christ. And they didn't really change their clothes styles or their hair length. They looked like everybody else, but their hearts were genuinely changed. And my father, like Barnabas one week, came out to uh, see what was going on. And I took him into a fraternity house where we had a Bible study and and he joined us uh, on the floor and he watched these students as they studied out of the scriptures and discussed together the things of, Lord, of the Lord. And Steve Newman was there and I don't remember if Terry and Brian and others were involved at that time, but, but he perceived the grace of God in these students. He saw that God was at work. And he was very quiet, he didn't say much, but as we were driving back to the house that evening, after a few moments, he said, you know, I've been wrong. I can see that God is at work in the lives of, of those young men and women. There's no question that God has changed their hearts. And he went back. He was the pastor of a, of a large church in Dallas. And he began to teach this principle to his people that we need to be open and accepted to other lifestyles. Only those things that are directly contrary to Scripture are things that we need to avoid. Cultural things don't make any difference. Now, this is what Barnabas saw. He realized that something real was going on, and he endorsed it and urged them to be resolute in their faithfulness to the Lord because, as Luke says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That goodness didn't come from merely come from some uh, change some that he made. It was the result of the work of the Spirit of God in him. Then we're told in verse, 17, or verse 25 that Barnabas then went to Tarsus to find Saul. And when he found him, he brought him up to Antioch. Then for a whole year they met together with the church and, tar and taught a large crowd. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first given the name of Christians. Uh, Barnabas began to see right away that he did not have the gifts to take this church on to maturity. They needed a teacher. They were untaught. They knew nothing about the scriptures. They needed someone who could expound the word to them. And so he went off to Tarsus. The text actually tells us that he had to search for, for Saul. Saul had probably been disinherited during this time. He was uh, living in someplace other than his ancestral home. And he had to be found. Uh, we know from other of Paul's writings that uh, he was preaching 
in the area of Syria and Cilicia during this time. He wasn't idle. And Paul had on his own come to the conclusion that the gospel ought to be going to the Gentiles. That fact was announced to Paul on the road to Damascus. And during this time, he had seven or eight, perhaps up to ten years of study in the scriptures. And he had come to the conclusion that that the Gentiles uh, needed to hear the good news. And so he was the ideal man to bring back to, to Antioch. Barnabas found him, brought him there, and for a whole year they met together with the church and taught a large crowd. And significantly enough, it was in that city that the disciples were first given the name of Christian. Not by the Christians, but by the non-Christians. That's the interesting thing about our name. Perhaps you didn't know that. We didn't make it up. It came from the non-Christian world. Christians never refer to themselves as Christians. The word uh, occurs very rarely in the New Testament, actually only three times, twice in Acts and once in First Peter. And in each case, it's a reference to the way the non-Christians referred to us. The Christians call themselves uh, disciples or believers or brethren or uh, members of the way, but uh, they never refer to themselves as Christians. The Jews called the early Christians Nazarenes. They would never refer to them as Christians because Christ is the Greek, Christos is the Greek word for Messiah. And the Jews would never say that we were followers of, of Messiah. Uh, the word came from non-Christians. And it probably had a somewhat pejorative uh, sense when it was first uh, given. The Antiochians were known for their sense of humor and and their tendency toward uh, kind of sardonic, uh, sarcastic uh, humor. And uh, this was a name that was, that was given to us because the believers of that period talked about Christ. They didn't talk about their church. They didn't talk about their program or their pastor. They talked about Christ. They were filled and flooded with him. His name was on their lips. His character was expressed out through their life. Everywhere they went, they made visible the invisible Christ. And that's why they were called Christians. Again, I remember once during those years at Stanford, we were having a street rally. A number of students were giving their giving witness in White Plaza, in the center of the campus. And, and I was walking around the back of the crowd, observing what was going on, and I noticed a couple of students... Uh, astride their bicycles at the back of the crowd and I edged up to them and listened to them as they talked to Jack Crabtree was speaking up front and I listened to them as they talked to one another and one, one said to the other, what's going on here? The other said, oh, it's the Christians again. And I thought, that's great. That's great. It's not people from Campus Crusade for Christ. It's not people from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's not the Presbyterians. It's not the Baptists. Not the fellowship of Christian athletes, as good as all those things are. They recognized that these were mere Christians. And that's what ought to characterize our life. Wherever we go, we ought to be like Christ. Live like he did. Express his character. Live out the same sort of gentle wisdom that characterized our Lord. Well, the story goes on in verse 27. During this period, we're told some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, by the name of Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there was to be a great famine throughout the world. 
This actually happened in the days of Claudius. The disciples determined to send relief to the brothers in Judea, each contributing as he was able. This they did, sending their contribution to the elders there personally through Barnabas and Saul. There were three offices in the early church. There were the apostles, who were the successors of, of Jesus, and that office was not continued after the death of the apostles, the last apostle, John, about 100 A.D. There are no apostles today. They had a unique ministry. They planted churches and they wrote scripture. And they spoke and wrote with the same authority that our Lord had. And no one today has that authority. Our authority today resides in their writings, not in any man. They uh, passed from the scene with the death of, of the Apostle John. The uh, second office was that of elder. They were the leaders of the early church. The idea of eldership was taken from the synagogue. They were elders there. They simply borrowed that office. And the early church and the church today uh, is ruled, was ruled then, is ruled today by a group of elders. That office continued. The third office was that of prophet. This was a time when the New Testament was being written. It was not yet complete. As a matter of fact, uh, not any of the New Testament had been written at this point, as far as we know. Perhaps the book of James had. Uh, there's a good chance that Mark was written shortly after this uh, event at Antioch. But there was no written revelation. The only Bible that the church had was the Old Testament. And there was some difficulty in translating Old Testament ideas into the New, new Covenant. How do we understand these things? So, for a period of time, there were prophets who received direct revelation from God, whose responsibility it was to travel from place to place and to teach people as a result of the revelation that they received. They were able to foretell the future, as the prophets of the Old Testament did, because that was the test of their authenticity. That's the way one checked out a prophet. If he could predict the future with 100% accuracy, then his word was to be accepted. And uh, this was a provision for this intermediate time before the New Testament was completed. Again, I do not believe there are any prophets today. No one is receiving direct revelation. No one is able to foretell the future with 100% accuracy. I believe that was a, that was a uh, gift given for that particular dispensation. Today we have the writings of the apostles and prophets. We don't need the prophets. But they carried out a very uh, helpful very necessary function in those days, and one by the name of Agabus, who turns up later in the book of Acts, came up to Antioch and revealed that there was to be a great famine throughout the world. And Luke says as a sort of historical footnote that this really did happen during the time of Claudius. And we know from Roman writers of, of this time that it did happen. In the years from 41 to 44 A.D., there was what one of these writers calls a great dearth. There were bad harvests and and floods and famine throughout the Roman Empire is a very difficult time. And the little province of Judea felt it perhaps uh, much more severely than any other portion of the Roman Empire. Before it happened, Agabus came to the church in Antioch and told them that a need existed or would exist in Jericho and in Jerusalem. And these people immediately responded by getting together and pooling their funds. Those that had excess gave it into a, a common pool and, and they... And they put it in Saul and Barnabas' hands and dispatched them off to Jerusalem to meet the needs of these, these believers in Jerusalem, whom they had never seen, who were very much unlike 
then. Culturally quite different. Had a much different perspective on life. But that was all right. Because they were brothers. They may have had some differences. They probably had some theological problems that they had not yet worked out. We know from Acts 15 that they were really struggling over issues such as circumcision and, and other matters. But they loved these people. And they wanted to do something for them. And so they, they took their own personal funds and they put them into a common pool and sent them off to Jerusalem for famine relief. And I say, and I see this over and over again in the New Testament, that the real mark of a changed heart is that giving spirit. That's the mark. It's not mere orthodoxy. Uh, James, who was perhaps the first writer in the New Testament, makes it very clear that mere orthodoxy is not the mark of a Christian. Even the demons believe, James says. The demons are just as orthodox as John Calvin or Martin Luther or any of the other form framers of our, of our uh, thinking about the New Testament. They believe it all. They have no question about the deity of Christ or his substitutionary atonement. They believe in the resurrection of, of Christ. They would never argue or debate with you that point. They're convinced. But it doesn't change their devilish character because they've never given their hearts to God. To my great surprise, I read a few weeks ago that Philip Melanchthon, who many of you know about, one of the uh, prime movers in the uh, Reformation, uh, the scholar who pointed out to Luther the concept of justification by faith, a man who had memorized the entire New Testament in Greek, and uh, who was responsible for most of Luther's great commentary on the book of Galatians. As far as we know, Philip Melanchthon never became a Christian. It's possible to know and never open your heart to Christ. Now, we ought to be orthodox. We ought to be as correct as we can possibly be, as correct as we can be, given the fact that Scripture is not always that, that clear. But mere orthodoxy is not enough. The real mark of a Christian is a changed heart. Not that we're perfect, but that we're making progress. That we're changing. We're becoming more like Christ. We're more winsome, easier to live with, more tractable, more teachable, teachable more gentle. That's the, that's the real mark. I've been corresponding for some months now with a a lady in town who is an atheist who reads my columns. And uh, just this past week, she sent me a pamphlet entitled Thumbscrews, Racks, and Other Ways of Converting Pagans to Christianity. It's an interesting book. Uh, Joshua is fascinated by it. It has a number of drawings of implements of torture that were used at various stages to convince others that they ought to become Christian. And unfortunately, those things did happen. Uh, there's really no way we can justify some of the things that Christians have done in, in the past in the name of Christ. There have been some terrible things done. But any thinking, knowledgeable Christian today knows that that's not right. What will win people is a lifestyle by grace, a gentle, loving heart, 
that comes only from the Spirit of God. Let's, uh, let's pray as God's people that we'll have that Spirit. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, the Spirit of God, the servant of God, must not strive but be gentle with all men, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If, perhaps, God will grant repentance to those that have been ensnared by Satan to do his will. It is not enough to know the truth. They won't be won merely by the truth. It's speaking the truth in law that will win. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, grant that we will take to heart this truth, that we will see that it's a change wrought by your Spirit that makes us attractive in the eyes of the world. We realize that it's your grace that makes it possible for us to change. We can't simply by resolutely determining to be good men and women that 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 will be true. It's only as your Spirit works upon us, changes us, makes us more like you, more loving, more serving, more giving, that we will genuinely change. Thank you for being our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.